Well, it is my joy to be with you. Um, I not only have a very special bond to your pastor and Gail, but also to this church over the years. You have been part of my life, those of you that have been here for the last 10 years, and it's a real honest joy to come back this weekend. And I want to share with you, if you're going to be with us for the rest of the weekend, I might say some things that um, you might not have heard them before. Uh, you might not even agree with them. But then, I mean, think about it. It would be a terrible waste of money if your pastor brought me here just to say what you already knew. And so... <laughs> And if you, on top of that, if you already agreed with it, then there'd be no point in coming here at all. And so um, I, I want to preface by saying that um, I have, I was plunged into a search to discover the God who is love. Uh, I was in my early teens and I came into a, well, I just say a monstrous, glorious experience of the Holy Spirit. I was raised in London during World War II. I lived in bomb shelters from my birth through till the war was over. And um, I came out of there a basket case, mentally and emotionally, terrified of people. And um, then the Holy Spirit came upon me in a glorious fashion and I walked out of that prayer room at three in the morning and that would be the first week I would preach and I've been preaching ever since. That was in 1952 and um, I, I realized God is love. It was, you know, the, the page just lit up. That was it. God is love. And yet no one seemed to really know that. And that, that's, I, I still, that doesn't fit well in my mouth. Because I was with people who would say, of course we know that. But it never seemed to resonate in what was said. It never seemed to resonate in what happened in the church. God is love seemed to be a very nice book on the shelf but when it got down to where the rubber hits the road, it wasn't quite like that. And I say, I, I was on a journey, and it was a journey, searching, what does it mean that God is love? And, and it took me many places, and gradually, 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 that opened up to me and opened up the goodness of God. And as Alan already said, it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. It's the goodness of God that changes lives. And that has become my entire message. At my age now, there's nothing else to talk about. And so <laughs> um, this weekend, um, we shall talk of how that love actually does resonate in our lives. But tonight, um, I want to share, well, in my mind, it fits what I'm talking about the weekend. I don't know if it will fit yours, but I, I believe it's the word of the Lord for tonight. And, and so in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9, and as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office and he said to him follow me and he rose and followed him and it happened that as he Jesus was reclining at table in the house behold many tax collectors and sinners came and joined Jesus and his disciples at the table when the Pharisees saw this they said to his disciples why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick and ill. But go and learn from what this means. 
I desire compassion, not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That is fascinating to me. It's a, one of the most fascinating set of verses in the Gospels. It's fascinating and arresting because it was Matthew who wrote that. That's the Gospel of Matthew. Well, it's Matthew giving his autobiographical account of how Jesus called him. And that's very important. Let me say it again. Matthew is the one who was called. Matthew now, later in life, is sitting down and he's remembering that moment. And he's writing exactly what happened that day. You can read Mark's gospel, and he talks about this, but he doesn't say it quite as Matthew. Likewise, Luke. Luke wrote about this, but he didn't say it like Matthew. Of course not. This is autobiography. Matthew is saying, I'll never forget that moment. I'll never, never forget as I stepped out of my tax booth and followed Jesus. And what he says here has arrested me. Uh, well, actually, in a, in a long time ago, but especially in the last few weeks. So, so let, it's the look that changed Matthew's life. Hear that. Jesus looked at him. Matthew recorded it. It said, Jesus saw a man called Matthew. And apparently that did it. That's it. It did it. Jesus looked at him with that certain look and Matthew just left his tax booth, followed Jesus and became a disciple and then became an apostle. You see, that's the first time anyone had ever looked at Matthew and saw a man. He was a tax collector. And I don't know, I, uh, I've tried to find an illustration out of today what a tax collector is. I do have feelings about the IRS that sometimes parallel this, but <laughs> nothing, nothing compared with how they looked at a tax collector. You see, a tax collector, well, what was he? He was a betrayer of his own people. The Roman Empire had come to Israel and they crushed it under their boot and they wanted taxes out of what is now part of the Roman Empire. Well, try and get taxes out of a Jew. <laughs> the Jews knew every angle. It took a Jew to get taxes from a Jew. And so the Romans said, anybody who will go back and take our taxes from your own people, that's it. And so they put things up for auction. And so Capernaum would be up for auction. And an enterprising Jew would come and he would bid for it. And maybe a thousand dollars, whatever, but he would auction and, and the, the, the Jew would bid and say, I'll buy that and I'll become part of the network. And so he owns the territory. And now he goes to his own people to collect taxes that he's going to hand over to the Romans. You can imagine, they hated tax collectors. And hate would be a nice word compared with their feelings. The, the tax collector was a traitor. He worked for the Roman army of occupation. He purchased, he paid money to become the oppressor of his own people. Tax collectors. Huh. And of course you had to be a certain kind of a person to do that. There had come a time when you'd already sold your soul. You're, you're a dead man on the inside to go back to your own people and to take the taxes from the people who already were burdened with tax. Today we call it tithing. That's a nice name. <laughs> you know, in the, you don't, <laughs> you realize tithing was a temple tax. You were a Jew and so you paid tax to the temple and it was not a tenth. That, that's what we've made it today. It was 30%. 
and, and, and tax here, tax there, tax there, 10, 10, 10. And, and well, that's it. I mean, 30% of your income to go to keep the temple going. And, and, and now, on top of that, one of our own people come and they squeeze us for the last dime we've got. And it was worse than that because the reason you purchased territory was because what you did inside that territory was your business. And the Romans backed you up. You had government authority to steal anything you wanted. Rarely did they charge the people with the taxes. It was a, they put in what they wanted on top of that. They skimmed it with the authority of the government. It was a government-sponsored mafia. He came in. Yes, that's the tax collector. And when he looked at you, his eyes were dead. You know those people. He doesn't see you as a human. He saw you as what, a cash cow. He's come to milk you again. Sees you as a thing, an object. Couldn't get money. Cruel eyes. No mercy. He's no interest in what's happening in your family. No interest he's going to close your business down by grasping your tank. No interest. It's money, I don't care what happens to you afterwards. Huh. He sold his soul for an extra dollar. That, that's, that's this guy. Of course, he was the richest man in town, lived in the mansions, fine clothes. But he was surrounded by bodyguards because uh, they, they had their terrorists, their suicide bombers in those days. They were called zealots. You might have read of them in the New Testament. They carried a knife up their arm and they came as close as they dare to a Roman general or a Roman soldier and then slid the knife, killed the man. And of course, they were immediately killed themselves, but that was worth it in their eyes. And the tax collector, the tax collector was almost worse than the Roman army. And so the zealots were out to get the tax collector. And Matthew knew it and lived in fear. <laughs> fear. It says always tax collectors and sinners. Well, the sinners was a, a way the Jewish people described. It was an umbrella word. It meant the thugs that looked after Matthew. The thugs that came and broke your legs if you didn't pay. And it also meant all the prostitutes. And, and so this is Matthew. There's no love, so he has to hire prostitutes to find some substitute plastic love. Huh. The Pharisees, but they, they were the deeply religious cult. If they brushed up against a tax collector in the marketplace, they went home, took a bath and washed their clothes. They had touched a tax collector. In the synagogue every Sabbath day, they read out the name of Matthew and then went on to say he is damned in hell, he's cursed of God. Actually, they said uh, that, that if he began to repent today, he wouldn't be finished by the day of judgment. And, and so he's lost, it's, it's over. And that's every, every Sabbath, his name was read out in the synagogue. Hatred? They called him a pig. They called him a scavenger dog that lived off, lived off the garbage dumps. Yeah, that's a tax collector. And um, of course then, when you're like that, you're alone sometime. You know, you do know there were no TVs in those days. You know, no internet. And when the lights go out and you're alone and you're one of these people, you're a Jew, remember? You were raised under the law. You know what guilt is. You know what sin is. You know. <laughs> and you might have walked away from it all. But when the lights go out and you're left with yourself, the shame, the guilt gnawing like rats in the basement. And Jesus, Jesus made his headquarters in Capernaum. It's a, <coughs> a <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> it's a beautiful town. 
on the shores of Galilee. Jesus made his headquarters there. Matthew obviously had heard of Jesus. <clears throat> there were times when the streets were filled with people being healed. It was there that he taught. It was in all the villages around. Matthew had to have heard. And had to have heard that he was different. His attitude toward the likes of himself was not like the Pharisees. <clears throat> so he knew who it was who came to the tax booth. Whether it was to pay his taxes or whether he just came. But he came. And that look said, Matthew, he saw a man. They saw a dog. They saw filth. They saw a pig. They saw a cursed man, a damned man. But the look in his eye, Jesus saw a man. A man. A, a, a man with a name. No one, ever in, no one in town ever assumed he had a name. They spat when they said tax collector. This Jesus saw. Jesus saw a man with a name. His name was Matthew. And that look penetrated Matthew to such a point that he's already halfway out of his chair when Jesus said, follow me. Do you realize what that meant? He left behind a fortune. He left behind wealth. Take it. I'm out of here. I'm following the look. I'm following the person that saw me. See, this word here, saw. Jesus saw a man. There are different words in the language of the New Testament, different words for seeing. And this one is interesting. Jesus saw a man called Matthew, saw him. It is much more than just a passing glance. It wasn't just looking and seeing that's a tax office and there's a bunch of people in there. This word is a very specific word. It means, what does it mean? It means to look at you and know you. You feel like you're being x-rayed. It's, it's the look, maybe another better word would be perception. He looked at Matthew and he perceived. That is, he got beyond all the appearances. He got beyond everything that Matthew did and everything people said. And he looked and he knew Matthew. He knew him as he really is. He looked down into Matthew's soul as God himself looking into him. And God is love. And for the first time, Matthew felt the eyes of love penetrating him and seeing a man that had been buried under everything people said and thought in his own guilt and wretchedness. Sorry, man. But it's more than that. It's, it's a look of know-how. I don't know how to... It's, it's the look that is not put off by what they see. Because they can see into this and they know what's wrong and they've got the answer. We, we've got a, a, a fellow who's our... I guess you call him our ranch manager... I don't know a thing about ranches, and all we do is have a ministry in the ranch, but the ranch is a ranch. And so we get this fellow. He's an old cowboy. Um, oh, he's so Texas. Uh, he, he, he bent over to do something the other day, and there was a big pistol out the back of his belt. Um, wears cowboy boots with spurs. He came to us from rodeo. He used to ride bulls. And... Um, but he knows about everything. And just a couple of weeks ago, suddenly out of the middle of the grass, there came this geyser of water. One of the pipes had broken. And our ranch is at least 100 years old, and probably the pipes have never been seen since. And when one goes, who knows what's coming next? And so we had to dig up, and, and there it was, yes, rusted pipes that looked every inch of a hundred years old. 
And Randy just stood there and looked. And I, I knew by the look on his face, we, we, what, what do we do? What do we do? No, he just looked. And in that look, it says, I know what's wrong here. Relax. I got this. I got it. There was no turmoil. There's no anxiety. There's no, what should we do? Who should we call? It's, I got this. It's okay. You can all go home. I, I got this. Do you know that kind of look? And everybody says, oh, he's got it. It's okay. Just that look. And Jesus came to this man who was a broken man. And he took one look. And that look told Matthew everything. It was a look that said, I know who you really are. I see you. And I got this. I got this. It was a look of hope. A look of expectancy. He wasn't part of the synagogue that says, you're damned in hell for what you've done. No, it was a look that says, I love you, Matthew. I know what's wrong. And I've got it. We'll fix this. No wonder he ran after him. It's... See, there's, there's energy in the look. If you, you, know, you know when someone's looking at you. Have you noticed that? At least when it's this saw word, that you can feel like burning fire in the back of your neck. Someone's looking at you in this way. Do, do you know what I mean? Okay, some of you do. It's, you know, have you ever looked at somebody and they've turned to see and no expressions? Be, there's an energy in your look, whether you know it or not. There is a, an energy that comes, it's transmitted in a look. Huh, that's for sure. Matthew knew looks. Matthew could write a book on how there's energy transmitted in a look. He knew, he had tasted the look of disgust. He, he, he'd... It felt it like a filthy thing coming over him. The repulse when people looked at him. When they crossed the road rather than walk beside him. He knew what a look could do to you. A look of rejection. Huh. He knew when people looked at him and they were afraid. You know, afraid because you're not like me. And if you're not like me, I'm scared of you. Have you seen that too? You see that. And you are the most unlike us person we know. So we're sort of afraid of you. But then we've got reason to be afraid of you. Because you've come and you've squeezed our family till there's nothing left. Yes, we're afraid of you. In fact, when we look at you, we're looking at you out of pain. We're looking at you out of misery. And that's how we define you. That's who you are. And it all comes out in a look. In a look, you see. And, and, and Matthew had lived there. He felt that. And, and, and he, he knew the depth that a look could go. That's our trouble, you see. And I'm talking about us now, when we look at people. Just when we look at people. Have you ever thought of this? We, we see what we think is there. I mean, do we ever look to see under the surface to what's really there? We look... And a glance, we make up our mind about a person. That's in. We, we just, what we think is there. And then when we look at the way they are, well then, the way I look at them, it ought to be right, you know. Because we're looking very surface. Uh. And anyway, everybody thinks that way. So it must be right. And we look at people and they feel it. Of course they do. As we look at people within the boundaries of what we know, which isn't very much. In fact, when we look, we look, what can I put it, um, through the lens of our own selves, our own pain, our own misery, and we see others through, through the colored glasses of that. We see life like that. We see memories of how the likes and kind of this person has hurt us in the past. And so we, we 
give it to them. Really? <laughs> we see out of our pain and we see many times with revenge. We, we look at people groups and we identify them as the source of pain. We don't see a man called Matthew. We see a blob of people and we know who they are. And if you go to some churches, if someone strange walks in, they get the look that you're not part of us, you're different to us, and therefore you must be going to hell. We can see it written all over you. That's the truth, tragically. When I was in Africa, which we did quite a bit of, but I was always the visitor. I never sort of got baptized into the jungle. And I would always take a guide with me from one of the local villages. And early on, we were walking, I mean, early on in my visits to Africa, um, we were walking the jungle trail. And he was just a native from one of the villages. He carried a gun on his belt, but apart from that, just a pair of shorts. And suddenly he got up, pushed me away. I fell into the bush. And then there was, pulled out his gun and shot at the pathway. And there, he, he, he'd shot this, this snake. It was one of the most dangerous snakes in Africa and it was where I was gonna tread on it. And he pushed me out of the way and then shot it. I didn't see that. I didn't say anything, just a little shaken. Why didn't I see that? And we down the path a little bit more and he shoots into the air. And right there in front of us, a leopard leaps up. I, I hadn't seen the leopard. It sort of blended with the sandy bluff and I said, there's something wrong with me. I didn't see the snake. I didn't see the leopard. What's the matter with me? Sitting there right in front of me. I didn't see it till it ran away. And I'll never forget his words. He turns to me, he says, you have city eyes. He said, I have bush eyes. He said, I see what's really there. You city people don't see what's really there. You only see what you think is there. Do you get the picture? Capernaum only saw a blob, a betrayal, a traitor, a no good. Jesus had bush eyes. He saw who was really there. And Matthew felt the energy of that. And he wrote how many years later he saw a man called Matthew. And that's it. Jesus. You see, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. God saw Matthew in the human eyes of Jesus. And God saw him and knew him and loved him. So Matthew reports, in effect, he was under the gaze of God's love. He was being surveyed by God's love. And all it took was a look. That was enough to spend the rest of his life to follow that look. Hmm. See, when, when we see the love of God, as Matthew saw that love in the eyes of Jesus, that love resonates in us. It's a great word that's used in the New Testament. Um, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said, the love of Christ constrains me. And it's that word. If I could give you a Greek lesson for one second. The word there in Greek is suneko. And I love that. That's where we get our English word echo from. You know echo? When the, the, the waves are crashing on the beach and you're up there by the cliff and the echo of the waves slam against the cliff, and you're enveloped in the sound, right? You do have 
Well, you don't have C here, do you? But do you know what I'm talking about? This, it, see, the word means, the word means, it means to hold. As you are held in the sound of the echo. See, you know where the you know that this isn't where the the sound is. The sound, the it's an echo of the ocean, but but the ocean has actually come and held me. And that's the idea. Sometimes it's used to describe arrest when someone's I gotcha, I rest you. And here in two Corinthians five, we've translated it constrains. It means resonates. The love of God is not a theory. The love of God is not for students to write a true false report on and then put it back on the shelf. The love of God comes and embraces you, bear hugs you, resonates for every fiber of your being. Love of God is the realest thing you'll ever confront and know. Matthew. He's caught in the echo. He's caught in the holding. Matthew, you're being looked at. And that look is the love of God himself to you and holds you. Okay, put it this way. For the first time, Matthew saw himself through the eyes of love. Okay. Have you noticed where we use the expression fall in love? Yeah. Well, how do you know someone has fallen in love? Huh. They've got that gooey look on their face. Yeah, they're, 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 they're shining in a weird kind of way. And, and their, their eyes are sort of not quite here. Uh, what's happened to them? I'll tell you what's happened. They have seen themselves through the eyes of someone who loves them. And they've never seen themselves through the eyes of love before. And they can't get over what that other person sees in them that they've never seen in themselves. In fact, this one person has seen in them what nobody in their family has ever seen. We call that falling in love. It's the resonating. It's the echo. It is that someone, someone is loving you and the energy of that love grips you and you see yourself as they see you, as you've never seen yourself before. And I was sure Matthew, <laughs> Jesus looked at him with compassion, tenderness, gentleness. Oh, come on. Acceptance. Matthew's never known that before. He knows what it is when he feels it, but he's never known it before. He sees eyes that are actually eyes of hope. I can fix this, you know. I love you. I give myself to you. So it meant he was valued. I'm worth something. To somebody, I'm worth something. And not as we hope he'll be one day, but right here and now. You've got to understand this. God loves you as is. You know? He doesn't love you that like, well, when I'm done with you, you'll be fine. No, he never tells you when I'm done with you. Just as you are. Do you realize Jesus is perfectly at home with broken, messed up, blind, deaf people? Those who are blind to truth. Deaf to everything of truth. Jesus is, a, is at home. See, I, I, in, in my religious past, I was raised to believe you had to get yourself together for God. That if you're going to get something from God, you have to clean up your life. That is so anti-biblical. It's anti-gospel. Jesus is God sitting with us where we are, as we are, 
looking into our broken lives and eyes and saying, I love you. And you have value to me, to the Holy Trinity. You are worth. That's Jesus. That's the goodness of God. And that brings about repentance. To tell you to clean up your life doesn't bring about repentance. Actually, it makes me stick my heels in even worse, you know. Certainly don't threaten me with hell. I'll come up with something like, well, I'll have a lot of friends there or something, you know. You're right. It doesn't do a thing. God is love. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. Actually, I hate that word repentance. It's um, a hangover from the very worst days, the most corrupt days of the church. If you can even call it a church. 1200. In 1200, they coined that word. You know, you know what it, I mean, repentance. You know what it means in plain, plain English. Repentance means to do penance over and over and over again. Right? Re, that is a Latin word. Re means over and over and over. Penance, pentance. Which means I've got to try hard. I've got to do works. I've got to do something to impress God. And come back to church next Sunday and they say, that's not enough. Do more, do more, do more. Grovel. Scream at him, you're unworthy. He likes that. Why? Why hasn't somebody taken that filthy word out of the Bible? The Greek word there, metanoia, means a radical change of mind. That's the meaning of the word. And everybody who translates the Bible knows that. Or they stick in the word repentance again. <coughs> Matthew didn't get a message that you're a screwed up tax collector. Get your act together and there's hope for you. It was just as you are in the act of taking taxes. I look at you and I see you and I know you and I love you and I value you and I place worth on you. That's the love of God, you see. It's the love of God. You've got to get used to Jesus. I mean it. You, he does not deal with sin the same way as the 21st century church does. It's quite embarrassing, really. You know? I mean, in this case, Matthew should have been taught to admit and confess his sin and say this prayer after me, you know, the sinner's prayer. It's not in the Bible, but we could still use it. And, um, and having done that, I mean, good grief, he's a businessman. He would know to sign the little card and say, I promise to follow Jesus. <laughs> right? But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't bother. He didn't mention repentance. Of course he wouldn't. But um, you see, it was the love of God that changed Matthew's mind. All the threats of the Pharisees, all of the curses of the synagogue, all of the disgusted looks of people didn't change Matthew. Made him very lonely. Made him hate the synagogue all the more. And one look from Jesus. One look, and that was enough to change his mind forever. He saw a man named Matthew. And that was enough. He was valued. He had worth. Again, and forgive me, but I learned a lot in Africa. <laughs> and the, the Zulu, especially the Zulu, they, I don't know, they can walk through the jungle without making a noise. Uh, they tread on a twig, and for them it doesn't crack. Uh, <laughs> and, and they will come up behind you. You, know, you wouldn't hear them. And this is how they say hello. They said, I see you, Malcolm. I see you. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's, in the telling, it sounds like, you know, boo, I see you. It's, it's not that, it's not that. Uh, what, what they mean is that you have significance to me. 
I, I, I don't miss you in a crowd. I, I don't see a blur. I see you, Malcolm. You, you, you have shape and form and meaning in my life. You, you, you have a significant place in my life. And I got used to it and I liked it, you see. I see you. You're not, you're not just a passing shadow. You're not what everyone says. I see you. That's what Jesus did. I, I see you, Matthew. I see you. But I say he didn't minimize sin. But honestly, I've got to get used to this. It's, it's the same way when the woman caught in the act of adultery and the temple police bring her to Jesus. I remember, you know, he was so bored with him, he doodled in the sand until they all left because he said, he that is without sin casts the first stone. You remember that. And he keeps on doodling in the sand. And then he looked up and he said to the woman, where, where, where are your accusers? And she said, they, they left. And then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Did I hear right? And I'm being very serious. I mean, isn't he going to tell her? She was caught in the middle of sin and I just rescued you. But you were caught in sin and it's about time, lady, you got your act together. No, neither do I condemn you. That means I'm not accusing you. Um, I, I, I thought sin was a crime to be punished. Jesus doesn't seem to think so. Interesting. And, and the people that were planning his crucifixion, Jesus wept over them because they weren't hearing what he said. But the, when they were putting the nails through his hands, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. For years I had problem with that. I said, they jolly well did know what they were doing. <laughs> no, said Jesus, they don't. they don't know what they're doing. But come on, do, do you understand what I'm saying? What, what's going on here, Jesus? You're supposed to come down heavy on sin. He doesn't. <laughs> and of course, Jesus is the presence of the Holy Trinity. <clears throat> you can't divide the Trinity. And so Father and Son and Holy Spirit have one mind on this. So some, there's a disconnect between how the holy they look at sin reflected how Jesus did and how we do. Jesus looked through behavior. He looked through, uh, right to the heart, to the person. And do you remember the story he told? He says, I'm like a pearl merchant and I'm looking for the pearl of great price. You, you, you are the pearl of great price. And religion has taught us to put ourselves down and say we're no good, we're unworthy. Jesus says, you're my precious pearl. I've been searching for you all your life. He said, it's like a treasure hidden in the field and I'll buy the whole field to get the treasure. That's you. You're his treasure. You're his pearl. And then when he talked about, actually he was talking then to the Pharisees about tax collectors and about, you know, the, the sheep went astray. And the tax collectors knew that's me. I, he's talking about me and the sheep that went astray. The Pharisees would go after the sheep with a club and say, you stupid sheep. Jesus said it was a lost sheep. See. And then when the younger brother in the other parable goes off into the far country and does all that he does, and he comes back, you know, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Oh, we're getting somewhere. It's almost close to an altar call there. Come on. 
Instead, the father, Jesus, basically said, the father says, shut up. No. And he grabbed the kid and he says, you are my son. Stop all this whining. Stop saying, I'm unworthy, I'm no good. You are my son. Yeah, but I, I've been aware that I, I was with the pigs and I, I did that. You are my son. A lost son, but my son. A lost sheep, but my sheep. And sometimes we even get that wrong, don't we? Lost. Go among some Christians and you've got to learn how to say the word. Lost. You've got to sneer it out. You know what it means. He's lost. Right? Would somebody learn English? Lost. What is lost? Number one, you can't be lost until you're owned. I can't lose your pen. I can only lose what's mine. So when it says lost, it means you are owned. You might not know it. You might not believe it. But you are. You're owned. Lost. But not just owned. It means that you're misplaced. You are mine, but you're not where I want you to be close to me. You're not functioning as you should be. I, you, you're separated from me. You're lost, but you're precious to me. So everything stops. I'm going to find my lost pen. But if it's a child that is lost, the whole village stops. Everybody goes out to find. Lost means the most precious. That which is most dear to me, which belongs to me, has gone missing. And we all go to find. That's lost. So take the sneer out of religion. It doesn't mean they're damned in hell. It means they're lost. Would somebody find them? They're precious. They have great worth. You're my treasure. You're my pearl of great price. All that came through when Jesus just looked at him. The energy, the transmission of Jesus' look was all of that. You are my son. I know the rest of Capernaum would never believe me, but you are my son. For you I came. In fact, that's exactly what he said. When the Pharisees came to him and says, what are you doing eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus was sarcastic. He said, well, you see, I'm a doctor and, and I, I, I don't waste time on people that are healthy. I only come for the sick and I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. Meaning you guys think you're so jolly right and <clears throat> you wouldn't even hear me if I talked to you. I come. But did you notice what I just said? Jesus said, I don't come for the healthy, I come for the sick. He's sort of saying, Matthew has a terrible virus of the soul that has entered into his mind so he cannot think, he cannot see. He's walking in darkness and blindness. In fact, it's turned him into a madman to do what in his sanity he would never do. And I've come to make him whole. I've come to heal him. In fact, he said, I am come, I am come for the likes of him. That's incredible. Jesus said the incarnation, God joining us humans, the sufferings of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, he said it's all for him. Talk about looking for a lost child. Jesus said, That's, I came for this came for this and it all came through in the look and you see that look when you see yourself as God sees you when you are seen in the eyes of God's love that opens your eyes so you now see yourself as beloved you see yourself as God sees you and as God knows you which also tells you what kind of God he really is. And he isn't the monster that is in a state of eternal irritation with you. But he is a, a God who loves you. He's not petulant. 
He's not a spoiled kid whose glory has been insulted. No, he just loves you. In fact, he puts himself in our hands and says, I'll take whatever you give. And we insulted him and spat at him. And he says, without a word, I take it. And I see when he loves me, I not only see myself. And I, I see the value of my creator upon me. But I also see what kind of a God he is. No wonder they call it metanoia, a radical change of mind. You see, you've got to see yourself in the eyes of God before you can see anybody else. Before you can look and see a man called Matthew, you have to see that he's looking at you and he's seen a woman and seen a man and he knows your name. You're seen in the love of God. Do you, do you understand? We, we, we say we, we've got to love people. Well, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. So you, you'll never be able to love another person till you are bathing in the love that he has for you. And then your love for others is an overspill. I, I'll quit with this. Huh. That's a job. Because um, it is. <laughs> in 2 Corinthians 5, we've already been there. But let me continue with it. He says, the love of Christ resonates in me, holds me. But then he goes on, he says, because this is what I've seen. This is what love showed me. But if one died for all, then all were dead. And the next verse is going to speak of resurrection. He said, I, I realized as a religious Jew, I, I, I thought of myself as God's pet. I'm his special. And you lot, your Gentiles, forget you. He says, I, I, the love of Christ came and got a hold of me. Uh, and what did I see in the love of Christ? That he died for all. All. Then if he died for all, and all who were included in his death, then all died. The cross of Jesus becomes cosmic. It covers all time, covers all people. God came into human. And what Jesus did resonates not just to me, but to all mankind. And said Paul, and this is the point, he said from that point on, I know no human being after the flesh. Do you know what that means? He said, if, if all were included into Jesus, his love, all were included into what he did on the cross, then when I meet you, I don't see you after the flesh. That is, I, I don't see you by what appearance is. I don't see you by your nationality. I don't see you in any way by your social standing. I don't even see you as male or female when it comes to that. He said, I see you. I, I see you. I see you, Malcolm. I, I, I see you as in the embrace of Jesus, even if you don't know it. I see you being carried into death and the grave. That's the end of the old you. Has no more authority. And I see you resurrected with Christ. I see no man after the flesh. I only see you in the light of the love of God and the finished work of Christ. So I see you. So I talk to you. That's how I pray for you. Take me the rest of the weekend to tell you what I just meant by that. But... <laughs> You see, when I see myself in the love of God, I see you in the love of God. That's what changed my life, I don't know how many decades ago. I'll never forget it. I was walking out of my study to preach. You wouldn't have recognized me in those days. I was drooling at the mouth, so how I was going to hang these people over hell. I mean, they deserved it, didn't they, bunch of sinners? They were lost, you see. And so... 
And as I walk, this is the truth. Like I'll be telling you a lie, but <laughs> I walked out the door of my office. And I mean, I heard within me the voice of the father. He says, remember when you talk to these people, they're my special. I love them. Be careful how you handle them. I turned around and I tore up my notes and I actually burned all my sermons because I realized that I was talking to people that when God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit looked at them, they said, they're my special. I love them. They're included in the cross. I could never again be the raging preacher I had been. I'd seen my, I saw, and it was the first time I looked at my congregation and I saw them. I saw them. I saw them as God saw them. I saw them as the cross defined them. It makes a difference how you pray. If you pray for people, you know, oh God, you know what a sinner they are. <laughs> Dare I say, maybe he doesn't. And maybe he doesn't want you to hear to say what you're saying. He sees them through the finished work of Christ. When I look at you, believers, how do I look at you? By the grace of God, I see you as complete in Jesus. I see you seated with Jesus. At the, I see you as his pearls and his treasure. Even if you don't see that yourself, I'd better see it. So that when I look at you, you can feel the very transmission of the Holy Spirit saying, he saw a woman, he saw a man. But you have to see it for yourself first. To come to a point you see yourself as that precious to God, precious to him. Stop evaluating people by what they look like. Stop evaluating them by the memories of pain that they bring up. Stop evaluating people by their behavior. Stop evaluating people by their ethnicity. And just realize they're the beloved of God. Like you are. And then our look. And you give looks all over the place. You give looks at work. You give looks on the street. You give looks right here. And those looks will be so potent in love through the spirit that a look can be heard a look can be felt and a look can transform a person's life Matthew had a boss boss was the Roman centurions one of those guys was named Cornelius Roman 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 despised by the Jews as much as the tax collector. And this particular one wanted Peter to go and share the gospel. And when the news came to Peter, he says, a Gentile, and he began, the Lord showed him what he thought of Gentiles, a mass of crawling insects, everything that was foul, reptilian, that's what he thought they were. And the Lord says, what I have cleansed, don't you call common. And when they came and asked him to go to the house of Cornelius, Peter reluctantly went. He realized God was taking him there. And when he gets there and he realizes, yeah, that's what I thought of this man. And the Holy Spirit shown me this man is not common to God. He's cleansed him, included him, and he began to share with him. And as he shared, the Holy Spirit came down upon the people. That's the funniest thing I, I say in the light of today, because uh, Cornelius interrupted the whole sermon with the Holy Spirit coming upon him and the crowd that gathered in the house. And that's very upsetting to the preacher. He doesn't have a chance to make his conclusion. He doesn't have a chance to say this is... 
And, and Peter stood there sort of like that. And then he realized that the man has received the Holy Spirit and he hasn't been baptized. We can't have that. We, somebody get water. We're going to baptize this chap. Read it. It's in Acts 10. Because you see, we, we say he can, you can't. He hasn't said that right. He didn't. Do, no. God's love is bigger than it all. And Peter had to be shown this God of love before ever he could be the love of God to the people. And that's where we all. And if you are a budding preacher, forget all the theology and just know that you can look at people with the love of God and transform their lives. The theology can follow afterward. But if all you've got is theology, you're going nowhere. And I mean that. Nowhere. And when you pray for people, don't rehearse all their faults. See them as God sees them, his beloved. And confess over them who they really are in Christ. And when you see yourself, see yourself as you are in Jesus. <laughs> so, well, I've got to confess my sins. Well, yeah, I guess so. Um, you know what confess means? See, that's another Latin word. Con means with. Fess means conversation. So confess means to say something together with others. Or it means to say the same thing as others. It's interesting. Who's conversing with who here? If we confess our sins, but there's a conversation going on. What's the conversation? Well, you're, 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 you're telling God what a wretch I am. Well, that's not exactly in the scripture, is it? How about this, that you are conversing with God and then you and God tell your sins about the blood of Jesus. <laughs> I think that's closer to the truth. We'll see you Friday night. <laughs>